0: morning. Thank you Jesse and worship team for leading us through worship. I was asked to preach today and I thought um, I could come be with the team or sit in my home like everyone else is and I thought that might be a little bit different experience for us to uh, to share from home. So I'm going to share from home today. Linda's with me. We'll have communion together later. And uh, we wish we were in your home or we wish we were all in church together. Uh, but it's a privilege to be able to be able to speak from home and know that we are uh, together in our separate places. We're going to continue our discussion today on our David series. And I'm going to warn you already, um Mylon's been doing a great job in this series, so um, I don't know if I'm going to even come close to what he's been able to teach us and, and lead us through over the last couple of weeks. So I want to thank Mylon for his leadership on this, and we're going to jump into uh, 1 Samuel 18 right after a brief word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand your word. Thank you for the deep connection through your spirit that you afford all of us, even as we are separated from one another. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us today through your word, which you would have us to learn and equip us for what you would have us to do. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. All right, well, let's pick the story up from where we left off last week. And if you recall, we had uh, walked through the story of David and Goliath last week, and I think we saw a real profile in courage uh, from David. And we're going to continue to see that courage in the the chapter that we're about to read together. So I'm going to start at uh, uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let David return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. He gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent David to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but my kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house. And while David was playing the harp, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand. And he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. But he had left Saul. So he sent David away from him, and he gave him command over thousands of men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. I can hear you in your homes. thank you <laughs> excellent well, um there's more to the story, and if we get time, we'll get to the rest of that story, but you can certainly read the rest of chapter uh, uh, eighteen on your own. but let's share some thoughts about David all right, I'm going to admit to you right now I am not a courageous person um I know it sounds odd. I'm I'm adventurous, no doubt. I love to travel. I like to go to different places. I like to see different things. I like to experience different food. So I certainly am adventurous, but I'm not really courageous. I mean, I don't take action. Uh, I don't make decisions. I don't move forward without really weighing the costs and the benefits. Now, some of you know how much Linda and I love to travel. And a couple of years ago, uh, we went to Spain together. We had a great time. And the first place we visited was a small medieval town kind of famous for Manila La Mancha called Toledo, Spain. And at Toledo, there is a zip line that goes across the, uh, the river. And, uh, when you look down, it's, it's gotta be a couple of hundred feet down from the, 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 the zip line all the way down to the river how exciting it was to be able to zip from you know the castle side of the uh of the of the river to the uh the 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 forest side of the river how exciting i remember buying the tickets getting all excited and then i remember you know going to the the um the zip line itself getting all hooked up and all of the safety equipment standing on that uh patio overlooking the river and all of a sudden couldn't do it. I didn't have the courage. I didn't trust that zip line. I looked down and I and I could I could know what was going to happen if I fell and all of that had my heart racing so badly. And some of you know I've got a heart condition. I thought my heart rate was going to go sky high, hit 140, knock them down, and I was going to end up in some Spanish hospital instead of enjoying the rest of my vacation. I literally backed off that platform and Linda did it. She would have done it twice if they had let her, and we've got the pictures to prove it. So that's just proof positive. I am definitely not a courageous person. You know, when times are uncertain, it's easy to lose our courage. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people who are just afraid to go to the grocery store. They're afraid to run an errand. Imagine what would happen if these very people were asked to, I don't know, say, how's a homeless person who is sitting on the bench over here on South 5th Street, if they are asked to care for an abandoned child for a couple of days, if they were asked to share a meal with an absolute stranger, what would they do? Uncertain times often cause us to lose our courage. Well, I don't know about you guys, but we're certainly doing a lot of uh, television watching, shall we say? Um, and trying to catch up on some movies that we haven't seen for a while so uh recently we watched a movie called on the basis of sex and i uh totally recommend seeing this film it's a film about the life of uh of Ruth Bader Ginsburg one of our supreme court justices and uh uh you know she was a woman that was full of courage uh, she, in the 1950s, before it was really heard of, was one of a, just a handful of female students at Harvard Law. Uh, and so when you see the movie and you see her walking through, you know, the halls with just full of men and, 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 uh, you know, men kind of you know, sneering at her as if she was in a place where she didn't belong or patronizing her and the other women for, uh, Getting a law degree when everybody knows they were just going to go home and you know cook dinner and have kids, right? Uh, but she she persevered with with courage. Um, her husband, while she was in law school, became deathly ill, and not only did she continue with her own classes, she actually proctored his classes too, so that she could go back and then tell him about the lectures, so that he could get his degree. So she basically carried two degrees and had a child all at the same time. She had the courage to leave Harvard when they wouldn't give her the opportunity to study remotely and her husband had to take a job in New York. And so if you look uh, up, up, look her up on Wikipedia, she actually graduated from Columbia Law School, even though she had gone uh, most of her time to Harvard Law School. Well, then we know the rest of her story. She spent the rest of her whole career uh, fighting discrimination cases against all odds, right? And even today. She's 97 years old and has the courage to get up every day and go to the Supreme Court and fight for equality. Now, that woman has some pretty serious courage, so I highly recommend the movie. Well, I think today's story, and certainly last week's story, um, portrays the level of courage that David had. Um, as we read, we, know, we all remember last week's story about how this... Uh, you know young guy you know a relatively small you know uh, uh, kills a seven foot giant you know that's the story that we know and we understand right today's story might hit even a little bit closer to home as we start to take a look at uh what's happening so let me unpack what's happening there's 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 certainly more than just the courage here, but I think what's unpacking what's what's we're going to unpackage here uh will help us to understand uh where. Uh, David's courage comes from. Well, it's interesting when we first start taking a look at chapter 18, I think the first thing that we notice is that uh, David is now no longer living at home. Uh, You know, up until the point that he goes out to the Israeli army, um, he's still living at home. Uh, He's still taking care of the family farm, right? He's still a shepherd. But remember way back when he was a young teenager, Samuel came and anointed him king. That has to be in the back of his mind at all times. And so here, after his encounter with Goliath, uh, Saul takes him to the palace. And Saul has him live with him in the palace, doesn't even let him go home. The Bible says from that point forth, uh, Saul had him at home and had him at the palace, didn't let him go home, so he was removed from his family. I think there's a lesson there. That when God calls us out of the world, he calls us, in, in, a, in an essence, away from everything that we have near and dear to us. Now, it may not be as extreme as David in that he never went back home again, but there's a sense of leaving when God calls us to, to something. So we see that uh, where David is now leaving to take on his calling. The second thing we see in this text is the incredible relationship that david has to jonathan so he's called to leave his family everything that's familiar and comfortable to him but when he takes on his calling god gives to him a relationship that's even deeper than any relationship he had with his brothers or even his father to me that's a a beautiful description of the church that we're called together. We come out of our families, and we certainly love our families. We get to go back, unlike David, we get to go back to our families. But there's a sense in which when we answer the call of God and we come into his presence and his community, that we're expected to develop relationships that, frankly, are even stronger than our blood relationships. And sometimes I wonder if that's true for us in the church you know, are we allowing the Holy Spirit to develop those deep relationships with one another so that we become even closer than brothers and sisters? I mean, look at the the text says that Jonathan loved David as himself, deep it goes twice it says that now there's something else that's very interesting about Jonathan's relationship to David. Not only did they love one another, not only were they sort of blood brothers or spirit brothers, shall we say, right. So they had that deep uh, uh, connection. But Jonathan, I think, recognized something. Jonathan recognized the anointing of God in David's life. Jonathan recognized that he had to give up his authority to David. And so he did. He gave him his royal robe. He gave him his bow. He gave him his spear. He gave him all of the accoutrements of what it meant to be in the line of the king long before that was ever obvious to anybody else. So Jonathan saw in David a call of God's upon David that something great was going to happen. Now, imagine, and, and also let me just point this out. I thought this was kind of interesting because I've always thought of these guys as sort of running and playing together, like they could have been on the same you know little league team or something like that. But in actuality, <clears throat> Jonathan was probably 20 to 25 years older then David. And so, uh, so this is somebody who not only recognized in, uh, a, a spirit brother, uh, the call of God, but was able to see the call of God on a younger man and give, uh, the, the authority to that younger man. Uh, so very interesting relationship and a lot has been written on that. We could go further into that, but we won't. We're going to move on and see the difference between the way Jonathan responds to David and the way Saul response to David. The Bible says that an evil spirit from God came upon Saul. Now, we don't like that. I mean, how could an evil spirit come from God? But, you know, we'll unpack that a little bit. I mean, really, um, it's it's a disturbing spirit, if you will. Um, it's not evil in the sense of good and evil, but it's a disturbing spirit. Um, it's almost a testing spirit. It's almost as if God says, Saul, I know what's deep inside of you, and I'm going to stir that up because that needs to be purged. And so when we get to, to Psalm 11, we're going to see that God tests his people. And I think that God was testing Saul, even though God knew uh, ultimately what was going to happen. And so uh, God stirs the spirit that is already deep inside of Saul. This desire to be um, always on the stage, this desire to be number one, right? We already saw it early in the text that Saul's starting to get jealous because, you know, he's reading into the songs that people are singing about David. He can't rejoice in David's successes because it takes away from his success, right? We all know people like that who can't be happy for somebody else because they feel like it takes away from their own glory, That was Saul. And so God stirs up this spirit in Saul to, I think, test not only Saul, but also to test David. And so we see this story of, you know, David, you know, knowing that Saul was probably disturbed. And so he's playing, you know, his harp, his lute, his lyre, right? He's a musician. And and so he's trying to use music to sort of calm the spirit of Saul. But it doesn't work, does it? Because Saul's got that spear alongside of him and says that twice David had to uh, you know, duck so that the spear would hit the wall and miss him. And so Saul becomes jealous. David becomes popular. And the rest of the story is the beginning of Saul trying to kill David. Um, when he realizes he can't kill him on his, on, you know, directly, and that probably wouldn't be the best for him politically anyway, uh, he goes through great lengths to try to get him killed. He sends him out on um, on impossible campaigns. He puts him in charge of, of thousands of men, hoping that he'd be out there, and, and he essentially puts a target on his back. Um, he knows that if he makes him. Um, a son-in-law, so he finally offers that he could marry his his daughter. Saul offers David to marry his daughter, knowing that if he put a target on his back when he's out there in the campaigns, there's that much greater chance that that he would be killed. David says, "No, uh, I, I, you know, who am I to be the, the the son-in-law of the king?" And so he says, "No." So you know that doesn't work. Finally, David falls in love with Saul's other daughter, Michal and uh, and Saul knows that uh, that they've fallen in love so Saul says okay well he wouldn't take my other daughter um, but I know he's in love with this one so he sends his advisors to say hey you should really marry Michelle then you become the son-in-law to the king it enhances your uh, status in society um, and uh, and Saul wants this to happen of course because it, it increases the odds that David would be a target out on the battlefield so David says look I'm just a poor shepherd. I don't even have enough money for the dowry. So Saul says to him, well, that's okay. You don't need money. I just want you to kill a 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins and that'll be your bride price. As the story goes, David goes out and instead of bringing back a 100, he brings back 200 because he knows that Saul is just toying with him. He knows that Saul is testing the Lord um, and so he goes above and beyond uh, to please Saul and trust in God. And, and we'll know. We're going to go through the, the story, and we'll, we'll see that this is just the beginning of uh, David, of Saul lining up against David as an ultimate enemy. So it makes me kind of wonder, you know, um, David's at risk. Saul is jealous and angry, unpredictable. Uh, you know, the pressure that David must be under. How does David deal with this? Our other text today is Psalm 11. And Psalm 11 is a a poem written in honor of David, showing David's character. And I think when we read Psalm 11, uh, if we put ourselves in David's place, and and for many people, we're in David's place today. The the world is is uncertain. Um, We're frightened as to what's going to happen in the world. Um, some of us might be frightened of the the, uh, the virus itself. I lost a dear friend this week named Greg Mast, who um, retired a couple of years ago from being the president of the Brunswick Theological Seminary. And I mourn that. And, and, and you know, at 68 years old, he should have had another 20, 25 years to lead uh, the church. Um, but he's gone because of COVID. Um, that frightens me. So, you know, some of us are frightened of the virus itself. Some of us are really hurting financially, and so we're frightened of what uh, the, the, the broken economy is going to do to our own uh, uh, financial welfare. Uh, so there's a lot of unease. Um, so in many ways, we don't have a Saul who's coming to attack us, but we have a lot of uncertainty that's coming to attack us right now. And so when we look to David to say, how do we respond to this Psalm 11? is uh some 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 fantastic advice so let me read that for you uh now the lord is in his holy temple the lord is in his holy temple how then can you say to me flee like a bird to your mountain for look the wicked bend their bows they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart and when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the children of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul abhors. on the wicked. He will rain fiery coals and burning sulphur, and scorching wind will be their lot for the Lord. Is righteous and the Lord loves justice. Upright people will seek God's face. That's Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. You know, David says, if if the Lord is present, why would you tell me to run? If God is in control, why would I panic? If God is king, why? Would I lose my courage? I mean, his his friends are saying you should flee for the hills and go and hide, but he's saying, No, 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 no. If I do that, I'm admitting I'm admitting that Saul wins. I'm admitting that Saul is in control, and I don't believe that. I believe that God is in control. I believe that God has a plan that supersedes what's ever happening right now in my circumstances. And I'm gonna trust in God's plan. I'm not gonna worry about what's happening here. Now don't get me wrong it's not like david didn't take precautions and we've got you know lots of stories throughout first uh, samuel where david is taking precautions but david is not going to back down and he's not going to lose his courage because he first and foremost foremost recognizes that saul is not king god is king that david is not abandoned god is home and david is going to Rely on that. He asks an interesting question. He says, when the foundations are shaken, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are shaken, when, when what you think is solid is no longer solid, what do the righteous do? I'll never forget when those planes hit the towers on 9-11, And all of that happened. I sat back and I said, what is God doing in all of this? Not because I thought that, you know, God in his infinite wisdom caused a bunch of Saudis to crash a plane into the World Trade Center, but because I knew that God was a sovereign God, that regardless of this thing that had happened, that God was in control That God was king. So that I knew that even in this, God could do something. David knows that too. And so David says, you know, even when the things that I thought were solid are no longer solid, when the foundations of the earth shake, what can the righteous do? Do you run away? His answer to this is, what do the righteous do? His answer is, God doesn't flee, right? We're looking for what is stable. And David says, the Lord is home. That's what he means by holy temple. The Lord is home. He's in his habitation. God hasn't moved. God hasn't changed. He's home. He's not gone. He's not distant. He's not hiding. He hasn't fled. He's home. He's in control. And David finds great courage in that. Many centuries later, the author of Hebrews would write this. From Hebrews chapter 12, at that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now, God has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. The Bible doesn't promise us that things aren't going to be shaken. The Bible promises us that God is in control. And sometimes maybe God needs to shake things so that those things that aren't secure fall away. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. So maybe we're going through something together in this COVID crisis so that God can shake the things away that don't matter and focus us on the things that matter. So that God can shake our dependence on the world so that we are more dependent on him. So that maybe God can shake our dependence on our Finances, so that we depend on him. And if we're less dependent on our finances, maybe we can be more generous, as an example. So what is God shaking in our lives that needs to fall away so that we can be courageous and move forward? David finds courage from knowing that God is in control David also finds courage from knowing that he has this higher calling, that he's been anointed to become king. Now, none of us has been anointed to become king, per se, and yet we have been. From the very foundation of the world, God created human beings to be kings and queens over creation. God anointed men and women to have a purpose, and so we're being called to be courageous because God is in control and because we have a purpose that he's calling us to. And sometimes we can't see that purpose unless everything else is shaken out. I, I want to close with a story of um, a, a man whose name was Desmond Dross. Now, Desmond was um, a conscientious objector. Desmond believed that uh, violence was not from God, and he couldn't participate in any form of violence. But of course, he grew up and was a young man during World War II, so he was conscripted into the army like many young men were back uh, during World War II, and he was placed in the Pacific theater. But as a conscientious objector, um, he refused to carry a gun um, and refused to be part of anything that was good, was good going to cause death upon somebody else. And so he was assigned to uh, the medic corps. Now you can imagine, and I know some of you are bets out there, and you can imagine what would have happened if somebody was assigned to your unit who refused to carry a gun, right? How would they ever have your back for Pete's sake, right? Um, I'm sure he was probably called a coward, a traitor, um, he said he had a very difficult time that people didn't respect him. But he was in, um, uh, he was a medic at Okinawa. And they were under heavy, heavy fire. And during one of the largest battles at Okinawa, he single-handedly saved 75 wounded soldiers by taking them off the cliff down a, a series of ropes and pulleys and into safety. And he later uh, was given by President Eisenhower the uh, the, the Medal of, uh, of, of Honor uh, for his courage. So he was a man who would have been recognized by uh, other soldiers as a coward uh, who ultimately was able to be courageous because his faith in God told him that even in the horrendous experience that he was experiencing in World War II, God was in control. And he was also reminded that he had a larger calling, that of calling people to nonviolence, of living a life that was worthy of his faith. And so his courage was based on God's control and the calling that God had placed upon his life. So I'd like to challenge you. Do you really believe that God is in control? That there's something happening that started at the cross, the kingdom of God growing ever so slowly, taking over this world like a positive pandemic. Do you believe that God is ultimately in control even in this time when the pandemic seems to be out of control? And what is God calling you to do? What is this pandemic shaking in your life that just needs to fall away so that you can focus on what God is calling you? two.